listening to episode 165 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we continue our look at season one of TNT's The Librarians. And you are back from traveling, well, not the world, but uh, Upper East Coast. <laughs> uh, uh, when you, whenever you're like trying to get around New York City on a, a Sunday night, it seems like you're on the other side of the world. But yeah, a week in Lake Placid. It's nice. Right. See, if if I was you, I would be singing "We Are the Champions" yes. in the background here. Yeah, yes. Or, uh, the lacrosse team that I went to play with in this tournament, we won the whole thing, so it was awesome. Yeah, and you know what? I, you you probably already know this, but when you're in the division that's called the Masters, that actually just means you're the old guys, right? <laughs> and when you're the Grand Masters. You're the really yeah. old well, guys. We're not the, the, yeah, I guess really old. We're not super old, but uh, really, it's the over 45 uh, division and everything. Yeah, so. but uh, yeah, I looked at the website for the tournament. That's pretty impressive. I mean, the, the teams, they get there. And that's impressive because I, I'm assuming there are a number of guys on your team that you didn't actually play with in college. Right. Um, there's, I guess, let me see. I think there was like... This year we had like there was maybe six or seven of us that played together at Canisius, and then a couple guys that played club ball with down here, and a couple guys from Buffalo that uh, we got you know that didn't go to Canisius but from the Buffalo area, and oh, okay. so it was good. Yeah, you know, it was a good group of guys. It's it's you know, pretty much the same group of guys have been playing together for a long time now. I've been on this team. This is my third year on this team, and uh, you know they've been yeah. in this tournament for like. You know this team for like 16 years, and this is the first time. It's the first time we even got to the championship uh, round, let alone to win the whole thing. So it's good feeling. Yeah, that was great. And, and I did my homework here. You know, your group, you built the program right from scratch. Um, at Canisius, yes, yes, that is true. Right, right. You guys were the first two, first two years. Uh-huh. So, all right. Well. Moving on from lacrosse, uh, <laughs> one one of the things I did over the past week was watch a film called Primer. Oh, which I had yeah. never heard. You've seen yeah, it, yeah? Well, I think we've talked about it before, actually. Really? Yeah. Two thousand four time travel movie, independent film, really uh, a, a great take on time travel. Well, I, I just I, I don't even know what to say about it. I definitely had to go online and read about what I had just seen. And if I ever get the chance, I'm going to do a rewatch. But uh, if you haven't seen it, definitely worth checking out. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm pretty sure we talked about Prime before. I think we we had talked about and doing like maybe a top 10 uh, time travel movies things. But I just remember with Primer that the dialogue is so like muted and it's pretty fast too. Like I ended up actually watching it with the closed caption on because it's all like science talk too you know like it's it's not exactly the most accessible movie well you know how i stumbled across it is a podcast that i listen to i think it's called sci-fi movies or film anyway they they pick a different movie each week and talk about it and these guys are pretty good and they were talking about this movie and as they were describing it i thought well I better stop listening. That sounds like something I want to watch. But the one takeaway for me was the host's warning to not get caught up in the sciencey stuff at the beginning. It doesn't matter. Just just get past that and you'll get to the story. So I went in with that and yeah, because like you, uh, it, it was just in one ear and out the other. Closed captioning, which I usually put on, it wouldn't make any difference. <laughs> Yeah. I still wouldn't have known what they were talking about. Right, exactly. I think that even with the closed captioning, I still like uh, was really kind of confused as to what was going on, which kind of led to, led to general confusion throughout the whole uh, movie. But uh, well, right, and, and apparently we weren't alone. So, <laughs> all right. So I'm taking my wife to work this morning. I'm driving down 140, and I spot this black late model Challenger, which I love mm. that car. It comes up not too fast beside me, gets in front of me, and you know he actually signaled, so I was okay. And then I noticed the license plate, DK Angel. Nice. Nice. I Now, my wife especially is really anti-talking on your cell phone while you're driving, which of course is illegal in Maryland anyway. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get my smartphone out that I now have 
and snap <laughs> a picture of it. But, uh, you know, she was talking. I didn't, anyway, so pretty cool. Yeah. So by the late model, do you mean like a more recent one? Or? Yeah, more recent, like okay. a 2000, probably 14, 15 or so. Yeah. The new, uh, new Dodge Challenger is a pretty boss. Well, I mean, the old yeah. ones are too. Yeah. But yeah. I like the new ones. a very kind of classic design to them. Yep. But uh, uh, yeah, well, I think I had posted it in, uh, in Facebook uh, probably a month ago. Uh, I, I think it was a, uh, I believe it was a Camaro that uh, I was parked by, or not parked, but stopped at a stoplight behind that uh, it was like a Deadpool car. It was all red and had little- I remember. Yeah, it's so cool. Now, did you get the uh, message photo that I sent you? Yes. Yeah. I didn't, I, you know, I, I'm a little- hockey team. Yeah, I'm a little yeah. leery of posting stuff like that. I, I know it's not that bad, right. but it, it, the best part is it's real. Yeah, I know. That's so yeah. hilarious. Yeah, just just Google uh, Germany Olympic field hockey, and I'm sure that picture will come up. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we want to remind you, as we've reminded you the last few weeks, we're going to cover the entire first season of HBO's take on Michael Crichton's Westworld when it airs in October. And, and I think we kind of know we, we want to do season three of The Librarians, whether we're able to squeeze all of season two in before season three starts, that's kind of doubtful. But, uh, you know, I, again, we'll keep you guys posted on what we decide. We've been having so much fun with The Librarians, it's just not, not, not ready to give it up at this point. Yeah, and it, it was great because um, so, you know, when we went up to Lake Placid, which is like an eight, nine hour ride, so the, we brought my laptop so the kids could watch movies and stuff but i forgot that our lap, our new laptops don't have disk drives in them so the only thing i had was they were able to get uh the librarians so oh. they watched uh the librarians uh all of season one so right. i didn't let them watch the christmas episode oh okay well, Which, you know, like you're like don't watch that christmas episode you know and they're like, why? Well, I didn't say Christmas. I just told them they couldn't watch episode four like because it was the girls, the young ones. Okay. All right. Uh, just a little bit of listener feedback this week. Java Attic tweeted us, I love Cassandra's clothes, always. But Christian's hat here is just adorableness. Now, did you know there's a group out there called Caniacs? Uh, I didn't until I think last week. Okay. I'm assuming Java Attic is a Kaniac. It sounds like it. Sounds like it. Now, uh, more Christian Kane goodness. Lisa King, and this was in the Facebook group, so if you haven't read it, you can go there and read it. But when we mentioned about Stone spinning those scissors in that one scene, she mentioned that that's uh, a trait of Christian Kane, and it's something that comes up a lot in Leverage, and apparently fans of Leverage... I guess that would be a point that each week you'd see what's he going to spin this week. Yeah. Oh, so, by the way, people who mentioned leverage, thanks a lot. You've just gotten me hooked onto another show. Well, nice. Done. Did you get past the pilot? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I, I just I watched like episode seven last night. So. Oh my god! And, and I didn't mean <laughs> did you get past the pilot like it was bad. I loved the pilot. Yeah. I, I just meant you like, just oh my I god, watched more than the pilot, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah and, that show is really really good. I like like leverage a lot. So thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, tonight we're here to discuss season one, episode five of The Librarians titled The Librarians and the Apple of Discord. But as always, we want to remind you, we'd love to hear from you via email at sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com or at the website where you can leave a voicemail using the leave voicemail tab, record your own audio clips, send the MP3 as an attachment, or just send us a tweet at Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, and we encourage you to consider joining the Facebook group and join the discussions there. And if, and if you haven't been to the Facebook group, look, we're Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. We're basically open to anything sci-fi because we and a lot of the members, we're posting current sci-fi stuff, random, barely sci-fi. You know, if, if you think it's of interest to, you know, the people that, that, you know, follow this kind of stuff, just go ahead and post it. Yep, go for it. Episode 5, Apple of Discord, was intended to be Episode 7. This one was written by Paul Guyot, who wrote Santa's Midnight Run, and Jeffrey Thorne, who wrote Heart of Darkness. Directed by Mark Roskin, Horns of Dilemma, and it aired on December 28th, 2014. I'm just going solid A. 
Uh, yeah. Not quite a plus, certainly not a minus, but I guess there's nothing wrong. I don't think we've ever had too many kids or parents complain about a solid A. <laughs> yeah, it was a great episode. A, a for sure. You know, I mean, Santa's Midnight Run was exceptional, right? Like really, yeah. like kind of like um, really knocked it out of the park. But uh, yeah, this is a this is very good too. Well, well, it was really good, and there was a lot of character development. And I'm not going to be surprised if by the time I end this discussion with you, I give it an A plus. But but we'll we'll see. Okay. Uh, a few a few initial observations. One, I love that Eve is less than thrilled that Flynn has returned. He's gone to her, his desk, and starts giving orders as if he's in charge. And you wonder how that was going to sit with Eve, and we certainly find out. And and I really like the fact that she is assertive enough to basically tell him, you need to back off. What it does more than anything, it just kind of speaks to the complicated nature of their relationship uh, as it's starting to take shape. Sure. And I mean, like some might look at this and say, well, she's a control freak. And so when, you know, the, you know, when Flynn drops by, she can't relinquish that control because an ego thing, but I don't think that's it at all. I mean, she is a tactician, right? She's a leader and she's formed this unit, right? She's helped mold this unit into a uh, effective team and uh, when Flynn comes, he just, it's like, it's like a guest coach coming in, you know, it's just, it's not going to, it doesn't work that way. No, it never works that way. And you said tactician and a leader, and, and that's absolutely right. But what I love is that the tactician part of her, the leader that always has to have a concrete plan. Well, this episode, she starts to realize that may not always be necessary. It may not always be possible. Right. And when it's not possible, then you depend on your team. And as you mentioned that she says, she's really built this team up to be, you know, something formidable. And that's one thing that also comes out. And this is really more directed at Flynn, but also directed at Jenkins, who I think softens by the end. Are Stone, Cassandra and Jones librarians or not? Yeah. Right, because they were kind of librarian. Well, they, they yeah, they call them librarians in training in the uh, in the pilot, right? Right, but he's even reluctant, Jenkins. That is to give them that much. <laughs> I like what he says. Oh, I always have their bags packed if you want to get rid of them. <laughs> but but of course, Eve, and rightly so, feels that they've proven themselves. Sure, as as they have. Right now, we'll talk more about this scene in depth as we go on. But that dialogue between Jones and Jenkins. When he calls Jenkins a coward for leaving, it's really what struck me is it's kind of the first time that Jones has really stood up and been a man. I mean, up to this point, he's been like a man child. Yes. And he still is to many degrees in, in this episode. Well, he is, but that that was one of the, the most special things I think about this episode is that we see a more serious side of Jones. And I don't suspect we're going to see it a lot. But it was really meaningful here. And because of the way the episode structure plays out, the one storyline features he and Jenkins together and then everybody else. I love that pairing of him and Jenkins, first of all, um, which was just, again, probably even you know, we had said earlier how when he was paired with with Stone, how that was you know the, the complete opposites, you know, odd couple type pairing. But I think even more so with Ezekiel and Jenkins. And you're right, that, that speech that he gives, it was, it was good. It was kind of an answer to the speech that you know Jenkins had earlier, basically telling him how much of a screw-up he is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing is we, we find out that the library is sort of at the center of this supernatural magical world, not unlike the Ash in Lost Girl. So don't the other factions realize what Duloc is trying to do? Doesn't seem that way. And so, you know, I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe it'll get addressed later because, again, even though I've seen season two, I don't remember any of it. Obviously, they can see what he wants to do because he steps in and he his agenda is is clear. 
but it's a valid question of why why does why do the rest of the magical entities why why are they even on board with that right why the do they put place. up with i mean why do they allow him into the conclave when they do it's almost like oh yeah he's one of us i'll vouch for him right it's like really this is the first time he's ever tried anything like that seems hard to believe yeah probably not though right yeah now the other thing that was uh, of note that there's something about the relationship between jenkins and Dulock. what don't we know how far back does their relationship go well like a thousand years yeah now i'm gonna go way out on a limb so far I might as well say the limb's going to break right now. Okay. Are they brothers? Uh, no, don't you remember? I don't. Okay. I, I kind of remember what the, the deal is with, with these two. Okay. Well, um, but I can't, like, I just remember, like, like the overall, like, who they actually are. But, yeah, because there is that that moment where, you know, he says something about, like, what we were once were to each other or something like that. I was like, almost were they, you know, were they friends? Were they lovers? Okay. Before you know, because that the way they say it, like as far as what we once were to each other. I mean, obviously, it doesn't have to be of a sexual nature, but you know, could be. Okay. All right, and then uh, at the end, the discord that's existed within the library and its staff has seemingly quietly been working itself out. In yeah. fact. Is Flynn the apple of discord? <laughs> Does his presence throw the library off kilter? Yeah, you're right. Because he shows up and all of a sudden Ezekiel's in charge, right? Sure. So that in itself would uh, would kind of indicate that, uh, you know, that, that yes, he does kind of throw. Well, when Flynn is just kind of like that, right? He, yeah. Um, he just kind of swans in and uh, things get a little bit more hectic when he's around. All right, well, a a brief plot synopsis. Episode opens. The Clippings book is going crazy. It's Again, I I think it's Jenkins talks to the book as if it's an entity. It's been producing articles about earthquakes hitting worldwide. So the team's in kind of a frenzy about what it needs to do. And that's after we've seen that scene of the Japanese couple. Is that a nod to Godzilla, perhaps? Yeah, it's definitely... Uh, similar seems, but, uh, Flynn shows up seemingly randomly. He and Jenkins quickly determine the earthquakes are caused by dragons, not just any dragons. It turns out to be a blood feud, but you know, blood feud, East and West dragons aside, more to the point, Flynn is like this whirlwind wreaking as much havoc as the dragons. He comes in, he's got the rain slickers on and everything. And it's just like bursting through the door with a gust of wind. So. Oh, you got the door fixed. Yeah. (laughs) But Eve immediately tries to put the brakes on. And she's, again, this is the first time we really see that she's pretty taken aback by the fact that he's returned and starts giving orders. And she even tells him that he's undermining her authority. And you start to realize, you know, your analogy about the guest coach is perfect. You you can't have a guest coach. Right. Yeah. She's she's the one who's. She knows how this team operates. She knows their strengths. She knows their weaknesses. And to be honest, I'm not a big fan of co-coaches either. Right. I mean, seriously, I don't think that ever works. No, no. One person has to be in charge. Someone's got to be the boss. Yep. So we find out that these earthquakes and geysers are caused by dragons. Oh, no, not caused by. They are dragons. (laughs) And, you know, we get a little bit of a background on dragons, sleep 90% of their lives away, but when angered, they awake. And we find out about the feud between the East and the West and Jenkins likening it to the blood feud between the East and West hip hop factions (laughs) startles Jones momentarily. Yeah, that that was uh well I mean, you know, that's always like when you have a you know kind of stuffy ish character that says something like that that's always, you know, comic gold. Right. But what we find out is that this is all about a stolen pearl. So what we find out in we'll call it the A story, I don't think either story is more important than the others, but since the last known sighting of the Western dragons was in Rome Eve, Flynn, Cassandra, and Stone head off, break into the Vatican, 
because they're going to steal back the pearl, which I think it's Stone says it's a simple repo job. Right. Yeah. But the problem, and I think this is just a, a great plot twist, is you need to steal something. Who do you go to? Yeah, they, they, but they, their, their thief is can't can't leave the library. Right. So I, I love that that plot element. Cassandra's got to solve the puzzle to gain entrance to where the dragon and the pearl might be. And, you know, we've certainly seen this exchange before, but Flynn's pretty impressed that Stone is able to help Cassandra use her powers. And then I love... Right, well, and also, I'm sorry, but to break in, but this is where, you know, like the, the ordering of the episodes, because I believe in the original ordering, this came before the Fables of Doom, right? So here we have... Jacob is the one who, who once again, once Cassandra starts to kind of spiral, he gets her to focus. You know, and Eve says they've been working on this a lot together, right? Yeah. And then, you know, in the original broadcast, then the very next episode, you have him telling her that he doesn't trust her, right? It just doesn't make sense. Like You're right, exactly. Thing. So, but you put him in, in this order then, and you can see he's gone from that point of telling her to her face that he doesn't trust her to working with her, obviously, a lot so that he knows her so well that he can get her to kind of control these visions that she has and to focus them and to be able to, to stay on task. Right. And when the two of them finally open the entrance, which, by the way, kind of reminded me of the Torchwood entrance. Yeah, right. Yes. Out on the street. But then Eve asks Flynn as, as they gaze at this opening in the ground, do you even know what's down there? And he says, no, but that's the best part. <laughs> and, and, and it kind of sums up what Flynn brings to the table at this point. I, I think showing Eve that a rigid plan is not always necessary and that there's beauty in discovery. Uh, look, there's a time and a place when you do need a rigid plan, but, and she's, slowly coming over i forget the scene in the episode when they say something and or or maybe she says it and and she marvels at herself that you know that doesn't even bother me yeah. anymore she said, see the things that are coming out of my mouth don't even bother me anymore you know uh she said something about like you know dragons and pearl or whatever you know but like she's like these crazy things that are just ridiculous she it doesn't she doesn't it doesn't even phase her now you know she's so used to all this and I think she's kind of getting used to the fluidity of the job and how it's their best laid plans getting off a of glay, right? Yeah. And, and I mean, on the one hand, it would be easy to say that she's undergone a more profound change than the others, but I don't know that that's necessarily true. They're all undergoing change. Sure. But I think but, mostly the change is, you know, as we've talked about before, as to changing from someone who basically is a solo, right, working on his or her own, to uh, being part of a team. Sure. Yeah. And now, speaking of a team, Flynn starts to proceed down the hole. Eve stops him, gets in front. I'm the guardian, right? I'm going to run point on this, putting herself in danger. Look, she's not bulletproof. And... To my knowledge, she's not wearing a bulletproof vest either, but she does mention immediately, and certainly from her experiences with the librarians, Riddler Trap, but she checks first. As soon as Stone picks up the pearl, once they get in that little room and they see the three boxes, and I think it's Stone can't see them. Flynn's the one that that describes each one, so he knows which one to pick, but as soon... Well, I think he he's, he, he kind of like... Jump, like Puts his head up real quick and, and sees it and then ducks back down. Right, because he's afraid of getting hit by the arrow at that right. point. But as soon as he picks up the pearl, he gets the eye glow thing, which never gets old no matter what Yeah, show. yeah. It, it's never good. You know, It's not like the, someone's eyes glow and they're like, oh, I want to donate all my money to charity or something like good that. Good point, whether it's <laughs> Bo and Lost Girl or yeah. so, Gaould in Stargate SG-1. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I forgot about Stargate. I can't remember exactly which, oh, I guess maybe it was the second librarian's movie where he has to waltz across the uh, a room of, you know, because he says, oh, I've been here before when he sees the uh, darts shooting back and forth. And, and I can't remember which of the movies it was, but, you know, he and the, the, the female, 
he's with, uh, he have to, you know, actually dance across the room because they feel like it's like in counts of three. So they, they waltz through the room as, as darts fly past him. Literally and figuratively. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, Stone locks, I guess he locks them in and then he goes up to see the museum, but not before making a condescending remark about their lack of art appreciation. Right. And it's not yet at this point, but but obviously we know that what he's holding is the apple of discord. He doesn't know that it's inside the pearl at this point, but we find out it doesn't change you, but turns you into the worst version of yourself. Right. So I guess Jacob's worst version is a supercilious art critic. Exactly. (laughs) Now, Flynn, Eve, and Cassandra come face-to-face with a Western dragon who tells them that they didn't steal the pearl, leading Flynn to reason that someone must be framing them, but who? So at this point, we're we're not necessarily figuring on Duloc, although he's appearing in enough episodes that we probably should look to him as our go-to guy from now on. Yeah, at least for the next couple episodes. Yeah. All right, so Stone's in the museum, continuing his condescending rant, this time, though, about the decision to hang certain paintings in certain groupings. We see him in a struggle with a painting, which is where he drops the pearl, which breaks, revealing the golden apple, and bingo, he's now fine. Right. But But Cassandra's not... Cassandra is not. She's got the apple, and wow, the transformation on her is profound. Yeah, well, she immediately starts taking her clothes off, so that that's pretty big. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, she sees herself in the mirror. She's got the midriff top, the short shorts, and and certainly we've seen the short shorts and the short skirts before. Right. And, and, and certainly, given the entire ensemble, it's certainly not slutty the way she dresses no, 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 ordinarily, no. but but she does favor short skirts. But then we see that Lamia has tracked them down and now faces off with Cassandra. And I've got a lot of favorite scenes in this episode, but for different reasons, certainly this is one of them. And then before you know, they continue that scene, we're back to Stone and the others. Well, how bad can evil Cassandra really be? Just, just awesome. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, so she visualizes force ratios that enable her to physically take down Lamia. And one of the things I'm wondering about is she going to remember this if she's ever in physical danger? I would say like, she doesn't have to remember because it's already, it's, it's already in there in her brain. It's just that normal Cassandra doesn't go there. Right. Like she knows all this stuff. She could probably do all this stuff if she wanted to, but she's, she's just not a violent person as her normal self. But her evil self has no problem resorting to violence. Well, right, but if if it's self-preservation, see, I don't think this is something she's thought out before, the whole idea of force ratio to take down a human being. Now that she's done it and been successful at it, I agree that that's not her normal self, but self-preservation, because look, it's going to happen again. She's going to be in physical danger again. But as you said... She didn't really hurt Lamia other than the broken wrist. Yeah, you know, like it's, it's funny because Lamia is so just like, you know, like the bad guy, just drop it. You know, I got a gun on you. And then, you know, Cassandra just takes her down. Did you see Stone wink at Lamia? Yeah. You know, she tried to kill me, Flynn reminds him. Yeah. Well, she tried to kill me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know what that's all about other than that Lamia's hot. Yeah, well, and she's still, you know, like we even saw, like, I guess the last time they ran into each other, uh, you know, Stone still kind of, you know, carries a bit of a torch for her, I think. Yes. Now, we find evil Cassandra's plan is going to take down a power plant and set up a cascading failure of Europe's power grid. And we also find out that she expects around three quarters of a million people to die. Which then goes back to how bad can evil Cassandra be? She can be pretty bad. (laughs) But that's pretty bad. But then that raises the question that that's in her. Well, I think it raises the point that it's probably in all of us, right? That we all have – there's a dark side to to all of us that, you know, we just kind of keep 
down. We don't allow to to run rampant uh, unless you are a sociopath, right? That well, well, and I guess that that goes back to the Dionysian festivals of the Greeks, right? Three days out of the year, we're just going to throw caution to the wind. We're going to drink, you know, bacchanalia, and that the other 362 days of the year are going to be ruled by reason and rationality. Yes. Because we all have that inside us. So uh, I don't know. I, I found that pretty interesting. Well, I mean, we'll talk about Ezekiel later, but yeah, you know, I mean, there is that thing, you know, that that especially Cassandra, who you know we might look at as being the best of them and the kindest of, of them, she goes really, really dark, you know, like way darker. Like all Stone wanted to do was rearrange some paintings. Sure, Cassandra wants to kill people, like right. thousands of people. Right, he's just an art snob. Yeah. Well, they have to trick her into dropping the apple, which she does and then reverts to herself. And Flynn kind of looks at Stone, who says, well, she writes a lot in this little notebook and I pay attention. Right. Which, again, as we've been talking about since the beginning, their relationship conflicts, he's softening quite a bit. Sure. And then she's like, what happened to my clothes? (laughs) And I think it's Stone that hands her her dress. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. So, I mean, you really see him, you know, looking out for her a lot. And it's it's just, I I think that's uh, one of the, the, which again, like I said, I've said many times, makes the the whole comment in the Fables of Doom about how uh, he doesn't trust her. uh, That comes later, all that more puzzling, um, because you really see them developing that relationship here. Right. But what I love about this scene, though, is we don't even have time to catch our breath from Cassandra possibly killing nearly a million people because Flynn and Eve grab the apple at the same time. They both have their eyes glow. They both feel the power. So we're wondering, okay, where's this going? Well, first, there seems to be some sexual repartee about getting a room or something like that. Uh But quickly devolves into an out-and-out power struggle for control of the library. So now it gets down to, again, what's really inside your head? What's really inside your heart? And it's not a pretty sight. Yeah, exactly. Maybe called this one could have been called the Heart of Darkness as well as the the one that was actually had that title. Yeah, that that would be pretty apropos. And, And so Flynn gets the apple... And then that that line, the magic I know, I could be a god, as he channels his inner Tom Mason. I'm, I mean, <laughs> seriously, I, I'm hearing Tom Mason. Yeah, sure, and, sure. And obviously, at this point, he's done falling skies. Who knows? <laughs> but then that that scene with Lamia and Eve, you know, between us girls, Evil Flynn's a little, uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's just classic. I mean, it's just yeah. it, it, I mean, a scene that I don't want to say it was going dark, but it was, you know, it was, it was a pretty serious little, scene, right? It was a serious scene, they're, they're, getting a little shady. Yeah. So but then, right, they, now, they, they, then they take the edge off with like a, you know, a funny line to, to at the end of it. So, all right. So then the B story binds Jones and Jenkins at the annex holding, as it turns out, a conclave that they didn't intend to hold, but Joan's desire for pizza with extra cheese and extra pepperoni or whatever it was <laughs> gets the better of him because he answers the annex door thinking it's his pizza being delivered. Suddenly he's now the arbiter of a dispute and has to hear a list of grievances brought by the Eastern dragon who's dressed like a man, Mr. Drake. Yeah. Well, and you, know, you just see how like, yeah, we talked about Ezekiel being kind of self-centered and, you know, here he is, like all this stuff that happens basically because he wanted a pizza. And then even later, like all he can think about is the pizza, right? And uh, when Duloc steals his pizza, then that, oh, that's just the, you know, he said he is evil. Just mocks him with that piece. <laughs> right. But at this point, I'm thinking, did Jenkins call for this intercession? I'm not sure how all of this transpired but or is this common practice that you go to the library when well, there's thought, like Duloc had called it because jenkins is surprised when all these 
the people show up, right? Uh, right, so right. I think well, that's Duloc had called it somehow. Okay, so Drake is a lawyer representing the Fei Lung, accuses the Western Dragons of stealing the Mystic Pearl of the Fei Lung. So we we learn that it's the anger revolving around the theft of the pearl that's causing all the earthquakes, and we recognize right away because Jones answered the door. That seems like a pretty rigid rule to have. Who yeah. speaks for the library? <laughs> I do, thinking, as you said, it was his pizza. Yeah. And apparently there's no turning back, but at least he gets to name Jenkins as his intercession consigliere. Yes. Which sounds like something out of... The, uh, the Godfather, right. Exactly. All right. So we find we've got a conclave. Unless I'm forgetting, this is really the first time we're introduced to all the supernatural factions in this world. Right. And apparently they peacefully coexist. Yeah. And they're using this to peacefully resolve their differences. Yeah, we got the the djinn that shows up, and then the fae, then the Iron Kingdom, and then a really tall lady who I assume is an Amazon. I'm not sure what that. Yeah, I don't think she ever really says anything. No. But this is the point, and you were referring to this at the beginning of the podcast, Jenkins and Jones have their first real serious run-in when Jenkins, in no uncertain terms, tells him he doesn't know what he's doing. And he's not meaning to be funny at this point. No, no. But then as uh, as Ezekiel points out, I don't know what I'm doing. That's my superpower, mate. <laughs> and then he runs off to... Yeah do whatever he's going to do. Yeah, he like owns it. Oh, yeah, I'll fully admit I don't know what I'm doing. That's that's how I roll, you know? <laughs> right. So then we cut back to the scene where Jones seemingly has everything well in hand, negotiated. negotiations are proceeding. When Duloc shows up at the conclave, asks to be recognized, nope, never seen you before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the others accept him. But it's clear... He's there to attempt to discredit Flynn, saying the library's outlived its usefulness. And A brings up the fact that, and I guess it's not common knowledge among the community, that the library per se has been lost, right? Because uh, he brings that up. Now, nobody seems to be surprised by that. Nobody seems to be horrified by that. So Yeah, they kind of take it a stride for sure. Right, which begs the question why they came to the annex for this meeting, I guess, again, I guess you would say that Duloc directed them there. Didn't they wonder, well, why aren't we going to the library for this sort of an intercession? But yeah, uh, perhaps I'm asking dressed. All right. So in what I think is the most powerful sequence of the episode, Jenkins has basically had enough and he's abandoning the annex. He even has a bag packed. But he, I don't know if it's, if he's had enough, it's like when he sees Duloc, so you think it was just that? Yeah. Yeah. Duloc shows up. Jenkins is visibly, I don't know what the word is. Uh, he, you know, he reacts visibly to Duloc's presence. And right after that, he's heading out. Okay. And Jones goes after him. And, and now the tables have turned. But Jenkins doesn't really even give him a chance to chastise him. He, he explains to him that, you know what, I chose sides once in a complicated situation and the outcome resulted in death. And going forward, I chose again and again, and the outcomes were always the same. Nothing ever changes. And uh, again, you wonder is, is, I mean, is this really a, a commentary on, you know, mankind and his inability to peacefully coexist because if we do it for a while it's we know it's not going to last right and you know when we learn later that you know jenkins has been around for thousands of years then that comment makes more sense you know when when he first says it and we think he's just a regular human living a normal human life we just he just sounds jaded right but when you say think that this guy's been around for over a thousand years, well, now maybe it makes more sense that in that time he certainly would have seen a lot and have people that he loved uh, have seen them come and go. 
so we maybe don't really condemn him so much for such a you know, cynical attitude. Well, you know, and it kind of reminded me of Trick and the Fey Wars and, and all of the blood that he had on his hands and the way it impacted him emotionally. And, you know, we don't necessarily know what these choices Jenkins made were and how much responsibility he bears for death. But it, it, it did remind me of that. And we've learned that because he says, again, pretty clearly, I came to the annex to hide from having to make these kinds of choices. Which we kind of knew all up because he said, you know, like we know that he's just been kind of on his own and he just likes the solitude of the annex and that the presence of the librarians there has been, you know, slightly bothersome to him. Uh, it's just, you know, he's now states it very explicitly. Right. All right. So two things. One, those things were all during times of one librarian, I assume. You know, now we have a whole crew. Maybe things are going to change. Sure. And two, are we seeing the worst in Jenkins and the best in Jones, even though there's no Apple here? Right. Ooh, nicely done, Dave. I like yeah. that. Now, you might say, well, whoa, wait a minute. The, you said the best in Jones. And of course, that's the wild card in all of this. Sure. Right. All right. So Duloc calls for a vote to end the library. Jenkins returns and delays the vote. Uh, again, I guess, uh, what do they call it in, in our political system uh, when when they drag out the proceedings oh, in Congress? A, a, uh, a filibuster. Yeah, filibuster. There you go. So, yeah. All right. So then the two storylines emerge. Flynn bursts in, out, imposters, daddy's home. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking to the team, of course, takes over the conclave. And that's kind of when everybody realizes they need to get that apple away from Flynn. How are you going to do it? You've got to steal it. How are you going to steal it? And I love that scene. It's so subtle. Yeah. Jenkins just taps Jones on the shoulder, and the two of them spring into action. Don't have to say a word. It's like quarterback looking out at his wide receiver. Uh -huh. Just gives him that little slight head nod. <laughs> right. And they're on the same page. Yep. Well, you know, the minute. You saw it. You know, it became clear that what they had to do was to take back the apple. You know, there's no question as to who's going to be doing that, right? Sure. And then everybody's looking at Jones, who's now got the apple. It's completely doesn't affect him. Yeah, it's just normal, completely right. as usual. Because he's already the worst version of himself. And then he says, well, you say that like it's a bad thing. Right. And I like how he owns, again, like, I mean, that's the great thing about Ezekiel. He just owns himself, you know, like just whatever. He knows how he how he works and how he runs, and he just rolls with it. Because um, I thought that was a little harsh, that line, that he's already the worst version of himself. I was like, oh, that's mean. But he just turns it around and says, yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know? Well, and, and are we going to see... A best, if this is the worst side, what's the best side? Well, I guess you could argue the best side was when he was baking cookies and. Uh, right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. But. But that, yeah, that uh, really wasn't him. Sure. Like, it's like I think Santa's hat uh, was making them do things that they ne wouldn't necessarily do, whereas the apple just reveals your, your deepest, darkest self, which then you could say, okay, well, so here we saw, like, especially Cassandra has this very dark side to her, this very deeply hidden dark side. But Ezekiel doesn't. Ezekiel is what you see is what you get, right? He doesn't have any hidden desires or demons or anything like that. He is what he is. Right. And I guess part of the beauty of his story arc in this episode is that he is forced to get serious. And he rises to the task. Sure. Which now, he's done in the past, you know, like we saw in the Fables of Doom, you know, like he really stepped up there as well. True. Now, he points out that it was all a frame up, and I'm sure Flynn had pieced all that together as well. But then we get that scene where Dulock and Jenkins are talking about choosing sides, which then goes back to what we we're talking about earlier about their history and, and their backstories and, you know, how much we'll get to see of that and and 
hopefully we'll, we'll, we will get to see you. I'm not sure if you actually remember that we do or not. Yeah, we do. Okay. All right. Good. So don't tell me. I won't. <laughs> All right. So we get to the episode debrief. Flynn produces permanent transfer papers for Eve from NATO to the library, finally acknowledges how well she's done, wants to treat her as an equal. And he says, well, I'll stay if you stay. She immediately signs, but tells him, I don't want you to stay. Go back out. Why she say that? Because she is putting the mission above you know her personal wishes, which is they, I can't remember which episode, that was like a big thing that they said. Like she wants Flynn to stick around, but she knows that what he really needs to do is to go out and find the library. Okay. What's with the kiss and run? Yeah. And what's with the flower he left on the desk? Yeah, I'm not sure about the flower, you know, but that was nice. It was. I, you know, <laughs> I, again, the, the dynamic between the two of them is perfect. And I guess, again, what was so telling about this episode is the ownership she feels in her job. And that I don't think she feels as if Flynn abandoned them. I think he, she feels that he turned these things over to her. Yeah. Right. Well, and they, they said, you know, they have two missions, right? His mission, find the library, their mission to deal with the everyday stuff that the librarian must deal with. Right. All right. So what are the worst qualities of each? Well, stone, hubris, that's even mentioned in the episode, yeah. arrogance, he knows better than the curators of the Vatican gallery. <laughs> Cassandra, that's the one that's so fascinating. I mean, she wants to tear down this power grid, resulting in nearly a million deaths. So what's the worst quality? Is is that worse than her newfound fashion sense? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's like at her worst, she is like despises people, you know? And is, whereas, you know, she's not like that normally, but deep down there's, and maybe is it because of the whole thing, her, you know, we know she had a lonely childhood. We know that she is very affected by the tumor in her head. You know, I guess at her worst, that frustration vents itself in psychotic homicidal tendencies. Well, and and I guess you could argue that, that because she's, led such a solitary life or so it would seem because I doubt whether she had many friends in high school either. Right. Right. And we will get to that episode shortly with the high school science fair. Um, (laughs) That, yeah, that, that kind of makes some sense, kind of scary, but, but it does make sense. Now, what about Eve's worst quality? Is it that she's a control freak? Yeah. Desire to control freak, uh, power hungry, however you put it. But see, I guess I would argue, and and I know this, and you know this, certainly from coaching, maybe even more so than teaching, that you can only have one person in charge. Right. The co-teacher, co-coach, doesn't work. One person well, has to be no, in charge. I'm not going to say a co-teacher doesn't work, but <sighs> okay, you're be- you're a better man than I. <laughs> but but yeah, I I got gotcha. you. That uh, especially like with with sports, I think is it's most appropriate that you know you have to have the person whose vision is leading the team and everything, or, or like in a company or something like that. You know, right? And it's not that you don't have an assistant coach right. that you trust that offers ideas and and different ways of seeing a situation, but that at the end, you've got to make that decision. So I, you know, that that's the thing with Eve. I don't know whether that's a worst side of her. I go back to then considering the, you know, the attraction to Flynn. I don't know. I'm not sure even how to, how to articulate it. But we just didn't get a lot of the worst side of Eve, you know, because they just, she argued with Flynn for a little bit and then he, grab the apple. So we didn't really get to see um, what, if she had taken the apple on her own, what she would have been like. Right. And what's his worst side? Is it basically what we just were saying yeah, about her? Megalomania, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, dude, Tom Mason, 
he was Tom Mason. Yeah, he was he was definitely pulling in some Tom Mason on that. So but great episode. I'm still gonna stick with the solid A. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll withhold the plus. Nothing again. wrong with I'm the A. Not, yeah, nothing wrong with that. So uh anything you want to add to it? I, I, again, you just see at the end with uh you know, like the Flynn's desk resets itself and she's just like, Really? You know, like so I think she imagined once she signed the contract that now the library would finally allow her to have the desk as her own, but it's not. And so she just sweeps everything off, not in anger or anything, just just in kind of like exasperation, maybe I would say. Uh, and then she finds the flower. Which does have an impact on her. Yeah. We'll see how much in the coming weeks. Right, exactly. So, All right. Uh, well, I think we've got four left as we head into – not only the end of season one, but left, the, don't what's that? Isn't there 10 episodes? 10 episodes. We, we've done seven, three left. Yeah. Okay. End of the summer. Ah, oh, crap. <laughs> that means the beginning of something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it had to happen, dude. All right. Well, we want to thank you guys for joining us tonight. Love to hear from you with follow-ups about any of the pilots that we preview. That seems like so far in the past at this point though. Uh, anything you think we should be watching and, and certainly some of you've been tipping us off to some things in the Facebook group I'd like to encourage you to join the Facebook group if you're already a member spread the word emails to sci-fi tv rewatch at gmail.com voicemails via the speak pipe tab which you can access through the website and we'll be back next week to discuss season one episode nine the librarians and the city of light but until then you know Dave this is what I have to say to all the other genre of podcasts is that do you think any single one of you can take me 